You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Two kind of real quick things. If you have, this is random, so, and I know this kind of be embarrassing, but I'm sorry. If you have a white forerunner and you're parked right out here, we need you to move it. So if you'd be like, oh wait, I forgot something and run out, we won't, we won't judge you. Okay, so, um, but it's, if you're on 69 and Sanders in that area, we have to have you move it for some reason. I don't know, I just got the card. That's just one thing. Um, I wanted to read off something else. In, in uh, light of this weekend, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, came across a quote that I think was significant, something he had said. He says, you see the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible, the whole concept of the Imago Dei, and that's, that's the image of God, right? That's what that means, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him uniqueness. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers to respect the dignity and worth of every man. Something that we've seen some progress, but we're not there, especially in the church, and we're working towards that. But the idea that man is made and woman is made in the image of God there has value. And and it's not just about the races, it's also about, and this is something that our church uh, works with and is passionate about, it's about the unborn. Uh, and so we support ministries in the city and beyond that, that defend the life of children in the womb. And one of those ministries is Thrive. We have a great partnership with them. We've done a lot of work with them. And they are actually having an event next door this afternoon at four o'clock. They're gonna be showing the movie Unplanned. We've kind of opened the doors for them. And so if you were, uh, would, would wanna come and see that, the whole city of Savannah has been invited, but we would love for you to be a part of that, that movie uh, and just that event next door and just be a part of what we're doing and that, what God is doing. But this is not a political issue in any way, shape, or form. It is a, a, a biblical issue because God created all men and women equal in his own image and have thus inherent value. And so we wanna defend those things, whether it's racial reconciliation, whether it's the unborn, uh, they, people matter because they're made in God's image. And so it's a great opportunity for some of you who are looking that could care less about the Chiefs or the 49ers. There'd be a better opportunity for you this afternoon. So... We are gonna be in Genesis chapter 26. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there or a phone or it'll be on the screen. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so it's pretty easy to find. So I watched the game like many of you on Monday night. I was very thankful that Clemson lost. I wasn't rooting for LSU as much as I was losing for Clemson to lose. That's just, you know, what it is. So. Um, but I was very grateful for LSU to win and Joe Burrows, it was an impressive game. But it was interesting, before the game, you know, all the commentators and the announcers and the NFL players, they're all talking about Trevor Lawrence and Joe Burrows and Coach O and, and Dabo Sweeney and all, you know, the big names you know. And right before the game, you know, they had the camera over like LSU's team. There's like 100 of these football players and, you know, the big defensive tackles and the, you know, running backs are in the middle and they're hyping everybody up and they're yelling and they're smacking each other. And, 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 you know, focus is always on the captains and the, and the important people. But I just looked as I was watching this, I was intrigued by just seeing, like, the guy in the back. The guy whose number is, like, 3,004, which means he ain't playing. All right? And he's just, like, you know, he's probably 6'4", 220. But compared to those monsters, he's just a little guy in the back that no one notices except his mama. His mama's like, just see him. He's back in the back, Right? He's not gonna see the field. His uniform will not smell a lick 
uh, like, the, like, like dirt or sweat because he's not getting in the game. He's just a, a normal guy in the back that no one really notices. Nothing extraordinary about him. And as, as I come to this text, this text today feels a little bit like that. It's just kind of one of those chapters that you kind of, if you look for sermons on this chapter, you're not gonna find a lot. And actually, to our shame, me and Clint, so when we were planning out this series and we had, you know, okay, this week, week one, week two, week three, week four, we forgot this chapter altogether. So I opened up my notes on Monday, getting ready to study, okay, what's this week? And I'm like, wait a minute, well, I can't be in Genesis 27, we didn't do 20, and I, we forgot this whole chapter in our plan. I threw our whole schedule off because it's so, just a guy in the back. There's no, you know, miracles, there's no Red Sea parted, there's no, you know, extraordinary events. It's, it's, it's the guy sitting in the back, right? We started this series last week, we called it Meant for Good, where we're, we're unpacking the second half of the book of Genesis. And Genesis, really, you could break it down in like five sections. It really is the story of five guys, not the hamburger joint, but five guys, okay? Adam, and then it focuses on Noah, and then it focuses on Abraham, and then it really jumps to Jacob, and then it jumps to Joseph. And all of those guys have significant amounts of chapters written about them, multiple chapters, some of them 10, 15, 20 chapters just about what's going on in their life. But there's this guy in the back named Isaac, who, who shows up once in a while, but he's just kind of, he really doesn't get a lot of press. In fact, chapter 26 is the only chapter in the whole book that's dedicated to him. I mean, he shows up here and he shows up there and he's kind of sprinkled in here, but this is the only time it's like about him. And, and as you read this chapter, I don't know if some of you read ahead, I had people first service like, I read that chapter and I didn't know what you were gonna do with it. That's because it's these four random stories, these little vignettes that you're like, I'm sure that's significant for him, but what in the world does that mean for me living in 2020, right? Why did God have Moses include this? I mean, he could have left this out. We would have been fine. No doctrine of the Trinity, no cross. I mean, but we have to remember that all scripture is inspired. It's God breathed. And so it literally comes from the breath of God. And for some reason, God has Moses put th these little vignettes down so that we may know something about this normal guy sitting in the back that you won't even notice. But see, I think that's the point. Because most of us are that normal guy and that normal gal that's just kind of out there, just working. You're doing life. Right? Maybe you're the vice president or the president, but even then, you're still just a normal person. Right? And that's the encouragement, is that God uses just the normal guy sitting in the back, number 3,040, he ain't even getting on the field, but he's gonna do wondrous things. And see, I need to hear that, because I'm not even average height for men. I need to know this. I wear boots so that I can get up to 5'6". Okay? And I need to hear that God uses ordinary people to do things and he works in their life. And so I think there's some lessons here from just this guy in the middle of the pack that no one really sees. Uh, and I think there's two big ones that, I mean, there's probably more. I'm gonna give you two as we walk through, but here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna walk through these four vignettes real quick. Just kind of explain a little bit because there's some cultural things going on, but it's pretty straightforward. Uh, and then we're gonna come back and we'll kind of unpack these two big ideas. 
If you weren't here last week, uh, kind of risk where we are in the, in the narrative, Abraham has Isaac when he's 100 years old, which is crazy and scary, uh, but he does. And then Isaac, last week we saw when he is 60 years old, he has twins, one named Harry and one named Liar, basically, <laughs> all right? And we're gonna come to their stories next week. This is kind of like a parenthesis in the middle of that story all about this guy that sits in the back that no one really notices. His name is Isaac, right? And so I've broken it down into the four, the four vignettes. I've given them each a name to help you remember them. They all begin with F, so all the Baptists said amen. Let's jump in. The first story, the famine, all right? Now, there was a famine. I'm creative, right? There was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. This is not the first one that Abraham faced in Genesis 12. This is the second one. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And so when you think famine, for us, that doesn't really mean anything because we're like, there's no food in the cupboard. Famine, let's go to Whole Foods. Let's go to Walmart. Famine for them is devastation. It's who's gonna feed our family? Where's water? Uh, We have thousands of cattle and sheep and goats. What are they gonna eat? This is huge. This is devastating, right? And so he is thinking about going down to Egypt because that's what his dad did when there was a famine. It wasn't a great decision for Abraham. And so God shows up and says this. The Lord appeared to him and says, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I should tell you. Sojourn in this land, I will be with you. I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's a promise of Messiah, right? Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. He says, stay here. Don't run to Egypt. In essence, trust me. Which we in our little Christianese say, yeah, trust God, Isaac, trust God. See, that's real easy to throw out when you don't know what you're eating tomorrow. When your, cap, your cabinet is empty, when you have twins, hundreds of servants and farmers and, and herdsmen, thousands of cattle, and God says, no, don't go where there's food, stay here where there's no food. See, this is where the rubber meets the road. And this is why God reassures him with his promise, I will bless you. I will be with you. I'm gonna do what I say I'm gonna do, which is just a reminder for us of why the promises of God are so precious and magnificent, as Peter says. Because when it all hits the fan, and it does, where are you gonna go? It's like Peter, when everyone leaves after Jesus preaches a hard sermon and Jesus is like, you guys want a bolt? Peter's like, yes, but where else are we gonna go? You're the only one who has words of eternal life. Right? And, and that's the idea. That's why God gives us his, his word to, to affirm us and to remind us. And so Isaac, he stays. He trusts God, just like Abraham. And you're like, man, isn't he a good guy? Yeah, but there's story number two. Ta-da, the fib. All right. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking thus the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Two things the men in this family did really well. They married pretty women. Abraham marries a woman who's so pretty at 90 that she is taken from him because she's so attractive. 
How many 90-year-olds do you know that are like, woo, she's a looker, right? But Sarah was. And so, he, he, so he, she gets taken. And so Isaac marries a pretty woman too. So they're great at marrying pretty women and then they're great about selling them out, right? And so if this story sounds familiar to you, it's because this is the third time it's happened. Abraham, his dad, did it twice. He sold Sarah to the, to the uh, king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and then he, he let her go again to a king named Abimelech, probably this guy's dad, in the very same location. And so like father, like son, Isaac lies because he's scared. They're gonna kill him. She's too pretty. They're gonna kill me and take her. And so he lies, right? But the story continues, and this story gets funny, and it is humorous in the Hebrew. When he had been there a long time, five years, five months, we don't know, Abimelech, king of Philistines, looked out the window. I mean, he's washing dishes. I don't know what he's doing. He's looking out the window and he sees Isaac laughing. Now, the Hebrew word is actually humorous here. It, it, it's no good English translation. Some of your translations say caressing, right? Uh, the King James says making sport, whatever that means, right? <laughs> but there is a romantic flirty, flirty connotation. My professor in seminary, Howard Hendricks, used to say, uh, I don't know what sport he was playing, but it's the kind of sport you don't play with your sister, all right? And so he sees him out there, he's like, Abimelech sees him like, wait a minute, what in the world? And so Abimelech runs out to him. He says, she's your wife, dude, what are you doing? Why did you lie? Why did you say she was your sister? And he tells him, I thought I would, you'd kill me. I'd die because of her. And Abimelech said, what is it you have done? One of us might have easily lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. One of us could have, could have you know, christianmingle.com or farmer.com and grabbed her and, you know, and then marry her and then where would we be? So Abimelech warns all the people saying, whoever touches this man's wife, you're dead. You're dead. So that's the story of the fib. Next story, the longest one, the friction right? The friction. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And so in the time of famine, when everyone else is starving, he plants plants and he is being blessed a hundredfold, right? And, the, and it's because the Lord blessed him and he becomes rich and he gained more and more until he becomes uber rich, right? And he had possessions and flocks and herds and many servants. And so you think about this, he just lied, he doubted God and God blesses him. Why would God do that? Because that's the kind of God we have, y'all. Just like Clint said at the beginning of the service, he loves us not because of us, but because of him. That's just the kind of God he is. And so he's blessing him because he said he was gonna bless him. But the Philistines, they were mad. They envied him. They see he's got all this stuff and we are starving. He's eating filet mignon and we're eating ramen. And so they stopped and filled. They're just bitter and angry. And you've seen these people before. It's your neighbor. Your roses look good. Your camellias look good. Your flowers are good. Your yard looks good. Theirs looks like trash. So what do they do? They, they let their dog run in your yard and, you know, go and put spots in your yard. And they'll throw their trash in your yard, right? Because they're mad. That's what they're doing. They're going and filling up all his wells. Because a well was a sign of, I own this land. This is my land. And so when, you know, at night they go and they fill in the well. Yeah, he, yeah, man, get out of here. It's not your land, it's our land, right? And they keep doing this, right? Even though Abraham had dug all these wells. And so Abimelech tells Isaac eventually, dude, you gotta roll. You gotta go away from us. You are too strong, you are too mighty. And, and he doesn't get it yet why this is going on. He will. He says, you have to leave. And so in his humility, 
Isaac, who's stronger than them, he's richer than them, he doesn't have to go anywhere, he leaves. So he departs and he encamps at the valley of Gerar. He settles there. And he settles, he pitches his tent, he digs a well, the well that his dad had dug in the the previous days, which the Philistines had filled in. And he gave them names, the same names his father had given him. But when Isaac's servants dug the well in the valley and found a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with him. They, they come up and they say, that's our water. Get out of here, you can't have our water. So he called the name of the well Esek, right? Which means fight or struggle and, and, and contention. And so he, content because they contended with him. And so he leaves, he digs another well. They quarrel over that one. So he calls that sitna, which means to be opposed or adversary. He moves away again. And there he digs another well. This finally gets far enough away that they do not quarrel over it. So he calls its name Rehoboth, which means room. So they get, God has given me room. The Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Now notice the order. This is significant. We'll come back to it. He goes to a place. He pitches his tent. He finds water. Then he's opposed. Then he leaves. Repeat. Pitches his tent, finds water, then he's opposed, and he repeats. Finally, he goes to a place where he's not opposed, but he still pitches his tent, he finds water, he's not opposed, but then he leaves. From there, he goes up to Beersheba. And it's almost as if God is moving him, and we'll come back to this. Beersheba was the place when the the great episode on the mountain, when Abraham takes Isaac up on the mountain and he's about to sacrifice him on the altar and God stops him and provides a substitute a picture of what would happen one day with God the Father and Jesus. As soon as they come down from the mountain, they plant themselves in Beersheba. It's a place where they had fellowship with God and they walk with God. It was a sweet time of communion with God in their lives. And now he finds himself back there and God shows up and says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I am with you. I will bless you. I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And so he builds an altar, he calls upon the name of the Lord, and then he pitches his tent. Notice the order, again, we'll come back to this. It used to be pitch tent, get water, get in a fight, leave. Now it's altar, worship, pitch tent, right? And then Abimelech shows up. (laughs) Abimelech shows up again and he's thinking, oh, what now? from Gerar with the, who's the, or whatever his name is, advisor of Phil called the commander of his army. And Isaac said, what, what have I done now? I moved away, I moved away. You kicked me out, you kicked me out. You hate me, you hate me. What have I done to you now? And they said, we see plainly that the Lord's with you. Now they get it. Something, God's on you, God's with you. We said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are blessed of the Lord. And so they make a feast, they eat and drink, they make a covenant in essence that we're gonna be at peace with each other. And Isaac sends him away. He doesn't have to, he could have smoked him. But he sends him away in peace. And on that very day, his servants come in and tell him a, a, a well that they had dug and said, we have found water and he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of this city is Beersheba to this day, right? And that is the story of the friction. And then the last one real quick is the story of the fam. When Esau was 40, he took Judy, a daughter of Beery, and the Hittite to be his wife, and I call this woman Bessie, because who wants to be called Basemath? Uh, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter. The, the, these, 
these uh, daughter-in-laws drive Isaac and Rebecca nuts. And, and it's because Esau is, is really trying to just stick it to his parents. He marries Hittites. Instead of marrying in the clan like Jacob is gonna do and like Isaac did and like Abraham did, he goes outside and he marries two pagans just to stick it to mom and dad, right? Family struggles, right? Christmas was no fun at Jacob and Rebecca's house or Jake, uh, Isaac and Rebecca's house, right? Life is bitter because of these two women. And then that's the end, all right? Four little vignettes. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Okay, amen, let's go, right? What do you do with stories like these? I mean, yeah, it's great to hear about water in, the, uh, in Canaan and family issues. How do, how do we living in 2020 deal with passages like this? Why does God include this for us? I'm sure there's many reasons. As I kind of thought about it this week, I think two stood out to me. Two, I think that for us, just regular people, middle of the pack, back, back row of the, of the huddle, I think there's some encouragement and lessons for us here. So let me give you two, uh, two things to think about. And then we'll move to worship. And both begin with P. I mean, I got four Fs, I got two Ps. I'm on a roll today. No alliteration for six months for me. Here's the first one. Potential. Okay, and I'll explain what that means in a minute. Um, uh, but when you see how this chapter, this is one of the reasons we teach through books of the Bible because it's, these are not isolated things. This is a story that Moses, by God's inspiration, is telling, the book of Genesis. And there's a, there's a flow and there's a point to it. And the stories of chapter 26, if you read the entire book, you'll say, this sounds very familiar. That's because it has an almost identical parallel in chapters 12 and 13. So in chapter 12, God says to Abraham, go to this land. In chapter 26, Isaac, stay in this land. In chapter 12, there is a famine. In chapter 26, there is a famine. In chapter 12, Abraham sells his wife out. In chapter 26, Isaac sells his wife out. In chapter 13, Abraham is opposed by someone who is selfish and envious, and he responds with great humility and gentleness, and he yields. It's his nephew Lot. In chapter 26, Isaac is, is treated unfairly by envious, jealous people. He responds with gentleness, with humility, and he yields, and he moves. I mean, it's uncanny. The order and everything is exact. It's almost as if God is repeating it on purpose because he wants us to see something, and I think he does. I think what he's trying to highlight, and this is throughout the rest of the Old Testament, is our great potential. Even though you're number 3,063, you're never gonna see the field and be Joe Burroughs. That you and I have been created because of the spirit of God in us with enormous potential. But here's the thing. It either could be a potential for good or a potential for not good that you have the potential for a generational impact, that there will be generational faithfulness after you, or there's a potential for generational sin. And when I mean generational, I don't mean my generation listened to Michael Jackson, wore swatches and rolled our cuffs up. Yes, that was great, but that's not what I mean when I talk about generation. When I talk about generation is, it's that your generation will impact the, the one coming behind you just by nature of proximity, for good or for bad. So Isaac sells out his wife. Where did he get that idea from? His dad. 
who did it twice, right? Isaac responds with great humility and gentleness and yields, which is good. Where does he get that? Where do he learn that? His dad. See how the, the potential for generational sin is there, but also the, the potential for good is there. And I think the repetition of this, of this, this book highlights it. And we see this throughout the Bible. Read 1 Kings 15. It's, the, 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 it's just a list of a bunch of kings, and this king walked in the way of his dad. This king walked in the way of his dad. This king walked in the way of his dad. It's a train wreck all the way down. You look at King David. What is David? David's a man after God's own heart, but at one weak moment, he lusts, he takes a woman that's not his own, and then he murders. What does his sons do? His one son rapes his daughter because he lusts after her, and then this son kills this son. And it's, it's this idea that God says in Exodus 34 at the end, he says he doesn't clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's and children, third and fourth generation. When it's sin is unchecked, it, um, it, it keeps rolling, right? It keeps rolling. And what I want us to see is, right, and I think what this text is highlighting is you have the potential to have great impact on those coming behind you. But you also have the potential to bring a train wreck. And on the negative side, it's just simply this. Just be aware of your weaknesses. Where are you weak? Where do you struggle? Right? And, and you cannot, we cannot just be apathetic. Well, that's just the way I am. That may be true. This is how my daddy was and this is how his daddy before him. But do you want the next generation to be that way too? I don't think you do. Right? And so it's just acknowledge that. And we get this. So even in non-Bible terms, we get this, right? Because we'll be like, he's just a chip off the old block. That's his daddy's daughter right there. I remember his daddy just like that. We, we get that. The idea is we, we don't want that. Because I don't want my kids to struggle with the stupidity of my decisions that I made. And maybe, maybe my dad did it. And I am not saying, just please hear me, I'm not saying that if your children do X or Y, that it's your fault. I am not. Everybody's got to make their own decision. We all do. But we have the ability to encourage and break generational sin curses because God has allowed that in the gospel. It doesn't have to be that way. You're an alcoholic. Your kids don't have to be alcoholics. You're a greedy, prideful, selfish jerk. Your kids don't have to be that. They don't. You have the potential to, to see them be generous and kind and godly. And that, that's the goal, right? But if, if we're just gonna, if you're like, well, I just have a temper and that's just gonna be the way it is. If you're just fine with that, then when you're, you take the keys from your 17-year-old and say, you ain't driving anywhere, don't be shocked if they flip out. Right? If you're abusing alcohol or something else, don't be shocked. If, if you have no uh, value on the things of God, don't be shocked. That's, that's, was, but we don't want that. The goal is generational faithfulness. And if we're gonna see that, two, just two things. Right? You wanna have an impact for good. Thing number one is just be what you want them to be. If you want your kids to be generous with their time, and it doesn't have to be kids, your roommates, those are, you're impacting at work, whatever. You want someone to, to be generous, and you gotta be generous, right? You want them to, even as simple as this, you want your kids to sing in church, why don't you ever sing? Because they're looking at you and you're like, be what you want them to be. You want them to work hard? 
then you better work hard. You want them to eat healthy, which would be a good application for some of us, right? This is the South, right? Fried chicken is, is you know, next to godliness. If you want your kids to eat healthy, eat healthy. You want your kids to exercise? Ex- and again, those aren't necessarily godly or not, but the idea is be what you want, right? You want them to make wise choices? Be wise, right? You want them to be gentle? It, it goes down the line. And my point is this, you don't need to worry about them. You worry about you. You We're so worried about, well, I want my kids to do what? Just, you focus on what do you want them to be and then you be that, right? And so I think Isaac learns gentleness and humility from from Abraham, that's great. He also learns to sell out his wife, that's not great. Here's the second thing, be what you want them to be and the second thing, and this is the most important, the most important thing you can do to impact those around you is actually for you just to simply walk with God yourself. That your priority would be your relationship with God. It's a priority, right? So that when you, you're pursuing him, you're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so that if, if and when you fail, just own it. Just own your, uh, I failed. The way you break a generational curse is you turn from that thing which you are struggling with so that if you blow up again with your kids, you're like, dad was wrong. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Dad was wrong to, to yell at that person in the car on Duren because they didn't signal. Repent and turn to the Lord. It's just being, it's walking with God yourself, right? It's, it's you having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's not, and here's the tendency for me, right? I don't wanna lose my temper or I don't wanna be lazy. And so me, just as a man, and maybe this is just me, maybe this is all of us, I don't know, but I think that I'll just, I'm gonna be more disciplined then. I'm gonna wake up early. I'm gonna do a longer quiet time. I'm gonna do, 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 and I'm gonna just, just grind this out on my own. That is actually the opposite of how this happens. Because what ends up happening there, yet I'll be disciplined for a season, but eventually I will get wore out and tired and quit because all I'm doing is managing the outside. And this is not an outside thing, this is a heart thing. And the only way for there to be lasting change is for the heart to be changed. So instead, it's coming to a place of weakness and saying, Lord Jesus, I am an angry jerk. I need you to change me because I don't want my kids to be angry jerks. Lord Jesus, I am a alcoholic and I do not want my kids train wrecking their lives. Lord Jesus, I don't know how to handle money and I am gambling and I am this and that and I don't want my kids there. I need you to move, I need you to change my heart and that is the place where, where generational cycles end. Because it's in weakness that God's grace is sufficient. If you think you can redeem yourself from your own sin, have fun, right? You cannot. You don't, and here's the myth that we buy in the church, especially the do, 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 do church, that you can conquer your own sin by yourself. That you can do it. You don't have to do it. Jesus has already conquered your sin. Has he not? Isn't that what the resurrection is about? The death, where is your victory? And so it's not about us trying hard, doing good, being nice. It's coming to him 
as to a living stone being built up in him and him changing me from the inside out, his power displayed on me. Am I gonna fail again? Am I gonna lose my temper again? Yes, but as I am asking God, change me, change me, it's gonna be less and less. And this kid and this kid's gonna see dad's not as angry as he used to be. Something's going on there. That's how you break it. That's how you have a generational impact. That's how you see generational faith down the line instead of generational curses. So just, it starts, it's a simple prayer. Some of us, we think we have to pray fancy. Just pray, God, help change me. It's like four words, help change, uh, three words, three words, PE major. Help change me. If you would pray that prayer, and maybe this week, right? This is not beat yourself up, we failed as parents or grandparents. No, this is not that. What this is, is Abraham, even though he failed, Isaac was godly. Godly failed? Yes. I mean, Isaac failed, but Jacob actually turns out okay, and his kids actually turn out okay. They got messes, yes, but we all do. This is not slam ourselves. This is, hey, if you've train wrecked the past, you don't have to keep train wrecking the next step. There can be a break in this. God can do that. He is sufficient to do that, and you can have hope in that. And so maybe this week, you get alone, get out your journal if you're a journaler, get out your notebook if you're a notebooker. Maybe you don't write anything down because you'll lose it anyway, fine. But think about just kind of two sizes. Number one, what do I want those in my influence to be? What do I want them to be? I want my kids to be servants. Great. That's a great goal. So then you can say, okay, how am I gonna model that so that they see that and how can I bring them in? Because if you don't have a goal, you'll never, if we all say, yeah, I just wanna be godly and we have no goals, I'm, I'm just telling you, you, you'll hit the target you aim at every time you aim at nothing, you'll hit nothing. So if you leave here and say, yeah, I just wanna, I, I wanna get, get rid of, uh, I, w- I want my kids to be this, but you never, you think about it and what are we gonna do? It's not gonna happen. So think about it. Okay, I want my children to, uh, you know, be committed to being with their, with their youth group. Great, what's that look like? I want them to be servants. What, think about it and then, and then you model it for them. If you say, I want, them, I want my kids to be in community, then you gotta be in community. I want my kids to be generous, you gotta be generous, whatever that is. And then think about the negative aspect. What don't you wanna pass on? And start, that's the area to start praying. God, change my anger, change my lust, change my money issues, change my selfishness. And ultimately, the most important thing you can pray is that your kids would know Jesus. Because it doesn't matter if they end up working for Bill Gates making a billion dollars a year. It really doesn't. Because if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul, it means nothing. So pray, it's good to teach them to work hard. It's good to teach them to get good grades. It's good to teach them to be nice. Ultimately, though, we want them to know God. And so that's the goal but you have great potential, CBC, because the Spirit of God is in you. And so let's, let's see what God can do if we, we just pursue him. You don't have to worry about everything. You just walk with God. Don't worry about your spouse's walk with God. Don't worry about your kids' walk with God. You walk with God and you see what God does by the Holy Spirit. That's the first one, potential. Real quick, second one is this. I couldn't decide on which P to use, so I put them both. You can choose. What's the point? What's the purpose? If you read this chapter, if you get, get back a little bit, this is just life. It's your life. It's my life. It's got a famine. Anyone ever have a famine in their life? You dry, you weary, feel like you're sad and you don't even know why you're sad. All right, you feel like you're wandering. You ever have that? 
Uh, you ever have any fears? He's afraid. You got fears? How am I going to pay for college? How am I going to pay the mortgage? What are we going to do? What about going to this? What school will you put in our kid? What, what am I going to get married? How am I going to have kids? But you got fears? What's next? Sin? Anybody got sin? Anybody try to take control and I mean, self-preserve and, and lie and try to get what I need to do? None of y'all do. First service was loaded with sinners, but you guys are good. What's next? Annoying people. Any of you got annoying people? You, you're not looking to the right or the left. I saw one guy look to the right like, yep, yeah. You got hard people in your life? A boss, a teacher, a neighbor, right? Struggles, hassles, things you weren't expecting. I got to move, I got to move jobs, I got this, I got this project. You got people coming behind you, you do a great job, you do a great project. Someone comes behind you and just shovels dirt in it. You're like, I just spent three months on that and you just trashed it. You got that? How about family issues? Anybody? No one here has family issues because you're second service, right? You're good. First service is all the struggles, right? You got teenagers, you got family issues. You got kids that don't sleep at night, you got babies, you got family issues. You got an in-law issue, you got a cousin, crazy uncle, Larry. This is life. Is it not? Is it just, just kind of like, yep, got all that? Maybe certain seasons more than others? And, and here, here, what's the point then? See, Isaac is much like us. He's driven by his circumstances. Got a famine? Gonna move. Got a, I'm afraid? Gonna lie. All right, I move to a place. What's the first thing I do? I find what I need, water. Pitch my tent, find me some water. Uh-oh, fight, move. Pitch my tent, find me some water. Uh-oh, fight, move. Everything he's doing up to this point is just based on his circumstances until he realizes when he gets to Rehoboth. It's almost like God has been doing something here because if you look on the map, what's going on is, I guess for you guys, okay, this is the med. He's here. He's getting moved slowly back to somewhere. Where? To Beersheba. Why Beersheba? Because that's the place where his, God's presence and intimacy and worship took place. And God is using all these little deals in his life to drive him, right? And he doesn't see it at first. It's plant myself, find water, move, plant myself. Finally, he gets to a place where he doesn't have to move. He's like, wait, it's maybe God's doing something. And this is why it's significant, because when he gets to Beersheba, he doesn't do the normal, right? He doesn't pitch his tent, find water. What does he do? He makes an altar. And he worships God. And God shows up and speaks to him. Then after all that, what happens? Then he pitches his tent. Then Abimelech comes and says, we want to be on your side. And then he finds water. See the switch He's no longer thinking about me, 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 me. Now he's like, I need to be close to where God is. I need to be where God is. And that's, I think, the point of all these things in his life, that God is trying to push him. And for a while, he's having to push him. And finally, he gets to a place where he actually can be led. He's like, oh, I get it. You don't need to push me anymore. I'm going. The place of God's presence, the place where he was close to God of intimacy. And as one writer put it, I wrote it down, the place for God's people is the place of God's presence. That God desires 
intimacy with every single person in this room. Yes, you number 3,043 that'll never be on the field and you're in the back of the huddle. God loves you. God wants you. God chooses you. But I'm just normal. I'm just this. I was a liar. God wants you and he wants intimacy. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man or woman hear my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will dine and he with me. That's what he desires. Draw near to God and he draw near to you. And I think that the point of this passage is the point of our lives. That God allows things like famine in your life. Wouldn't choose it. Don't want it. But why does he allow it? So that you will realize that God will sustain you even in the desert. Right? That, that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That he will provide living water that will spring up within you. That's why God allows famine, to push you towards himself. God allows you to be afraid. Why? So that you will turn around and realize that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of anxiety and depression and loss and bankruptcy and confusion, that I walk through that valley, that I shall fear no evil because your rod and your staff, they're gonna kick someone's butt. That's the idea, that I'm protecting me, that you will never leave me or forsake me that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So maybe God's allowing you to be in a place of a little fear because he wants to draw you close to himself. Even in your sin, some of you are just feel so guilty because of a past. And Jesus is saying, was my cross not enough for you? I gave everything I could. You don't, you don't have to be guilty. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you're the prodigal and you start turning and you've repented and you've turned back to Jesus, he is the father who is running. He is booking. He is tucked up his robe. He is booking towards you. He's throwing a ring on your finger. He's wrapping you in his arms and he's killing the fattened calf so that you can eat filet mignon and celebrate with him. That's the kind of God. And maybe your sin is a reminder of your goodness, of the goodness of God and his love for you. Hassles, loss of job, annoying people, right? God is using those to drive you to say, hey, this world is not your home. That is. And in this world, you're gonna have annoying people. This world, you're gonna have troubles. You're gonna have plumbing issues. You're gonna have transmissions dropping. You're gonna have bills you weren't expected. You're gonna have X, Y, and Z. But I Take courage, I have overcome the world. It's, supposed to, it's driving you to him. Family issues, right? Despite your Instagram, your family is not perfect. And that's okay. But here's what God's reminding us. That he has a family. That he has purchased them with his blood and that one day he will present his family, which is broke as a joke right now, but he will present his bride to his son as pure and holy Right? And we will forever worship and be rejoicing as the bride of Christ, the church. And God is reminding us of that. What's the point? The point is, life is about seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all his things will be added. And I think God is teaching Isaac that. Isaac's a nobody in the back of the room who has a great impact. Did he have failures? Yes. But he was a man of faith. And he impacted those coming after. You can do the same. I don't, you're like, well, you don't know my past. I don't care. I know Jesus. I know what he can do through us. You have great potential. 
to have an impact on those beyond by God's Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And the point of, of all these things, maybe you're in these places, maybe God's trying to say, hey, come back to me. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And that's, that's what we want, y'all. We want a church that just draws near to God. Not perfect, not have it all together, but one who goes after God. And he will come in with us and dine with us and us with him. Let me pray. Why don't you stand? We'll just respond with a few songs and then we'll leave. Father, I thank you for truth that you have pursued us and love us and you want to use us, just normal folks living normal lives. I pray that you would do so. I pray for those who are in famine or maybe they're in the valley or maybe uh, there's hassles that they just don't want. Use these things to draw us close to you. You want us to know you. Your heart is to know you to be satisfied in you. And so I pray that we would continue to remember how much we need you. It's in Christ's name I pray.